You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Good evening and welcome to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and coming up on the show tonight, I'll be learning about some new wines at the annual Forestal Wine Merchants Wine Fair. PR guru and restaurant reviewer for the Belfast Telegraph, Joris Min will be sharing his experience of staying at a chateau in France that belongs to the Hennessy Cognac family. Keith Mahan, CEO of thetaste.ie, will be joining us on the phone and Michelin star chef JP McMahon will be appealing for your support for his Kickstarter project, Farmer, which is a fast food restaurant with a difference. If you want to get in touch with me, feel free to drop me an email, s.noonan at live.ie, or you can tweet me at Queen of Org, as in Queen of Organisation. Now, usually every month, Ron Forrestal drops in with some wine recommendations for us. But as you know, Forrestal Wine Merchants hosted their annual wine tasting in County Limerick recently. When I was there, I met a couple of Ron's suppliers and sure, the choice of wine was endless. So let's have a listen. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Frank, you're from the Vineyard Wine Company in Galway, so you're here tonight with a selection of wines, most of them from the New World. Yes, uh, we have wines from Chile, Argentina, New Zealand and Australia, and uh, we import from all of those regions, yeah. And which are the most popular wines? Uh, Well, Chile actually is now the brand leader in Ireland, Uh, they have 23% of the market, uh, so every 23 bottles out of 100 sold um, are now Chilean. They've overtaken Australia into first place, and that's just happened in, in uh, 2015. And is that across the world, or is that uh, just in Ireland? No, that's the Irish market, because each, each market will be different. Obviously, the French market would be dominated by French wines, but in the Irish market, Chile is now number one. Yeah. And why do you think that is? Why are the Irish, why are they leaning more towards the Chilean than, say, the French or the Australian? Well, I think with, with Chile, and especially after the last few years, it's where the value has been offered. And Chilean wines uh, come in at various different uh, retail points. Uh, but usually you would start Chilean wines at kind of eight euros upwards. And that's, you know, affordable in, in lots of cases. There are some cheaper Chilean wines in some of the supermarkets, there's no doubt, uh, on special offer from time to time. But it's not just about the price, it's about the quality as well. And I think in Chile, where um, the climate isn't as volatile as, say, in, in, in uh, Europe, um, you know, you have the Pacific on one side, you have the Andes on the other, you have the Atacama Desert in the north, and the uh, South Pole. And it's, it's kind of a protected climate. And the same with uh, Argentina in, in reverse, if you know what I mean. Uh, they have the Atlantic on one side. But... Um, the, um, the, 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 there isn't that kind of volatility that we have with the weather in Europe and so therefore you get a steadier type of vintage and the wines do not uh, vary greatly from vintage to vintage and I think that once you have a good quality coming through at a good price well then you know you're going to get the results and that's what's happened with Chile and in saying that Argentina as well has, has improved because uh, the Malbec grape has, has uh, really uh, caught the attention of people and uh, they're making inroads as well you know Now is this a Chilean one that we're going to taste first? Yeah, this is a, a Vistamar Sauvignon Blanc um, from Central Valley, uh, Chile is is one valley after another, and e- all of the big vineyards have um, you know their own parcels in each in each valley. But this is from Central Valley, and uh, it's quite a nice um, Sauvignon Blanc. On the nose, you should be getting some um, tropical fruits, some citrus, and. Um, are you going to taste it? Or I'm going to taste it, yet you're just aerating it there for me. Isn't that the technical term? Now, tell me what's the best way to approach this in terms of bringing it up to my nose and my mouth. Well, well, it's very simple, really. If you swirl it around in the glass and then bring it to your nose and just take a deep breath and into your nostrils and you will get this tropical, uh, tropical fruit, kind of citrus style coming through, then... Are you going to taste or am I? I'm going to taste, yeah. yeah <laughs> okay. I'm going to taste, so you okay. talk me through there. Well, again, um, it should on the palate. It's nice and refreshing. You get a nice mouthfeel. And then uh, you'll get those tropical fruits coming through, little bits of citrus, little bits of grapefruit. And then what you've got then is a nice dry finish. 
I hope you've got that. Yeah, and I have to say, I have had this wine before and didn't particularly like it, but mm. I, it is very nice tonight. I think it's not as cold as it maybe was the last time I had it. And you were, yeah. you have mm. some thoughts on the Irish and the temperature that they serve their or drink yeah. their wine at. Well, you know, if you... If go to any um, say Europe in particular um, they have the temperature controlled fridges obviously but they're very uh, they're slightly higher temperature than, than, than our own fridges and then they pop it straight into ice so initially the wine is not as cold as the Irish tend to hold them uh, you often hear of people buying wine on a Friday night and putting it in the fridge on a Friday night but they're not going to actually consume it until Saturday night which is, is really it's, it's not necessary I think if you can put a white wine in the fridge two to three hours before uh, consuming, it's adequate. Sometimes wines are left in fridges for too long, uh, whether in restaurants or in houses, and I think if they're left there for a long period, it, they actually chill the fruit from, from, the, from the wine. Um, same with red wine. Irish people tend to drink their wines too uh, warm. You often hear people coming home and they stick it in beside the fire or they put it on a radiator and okay if it's very extreme uh, uh, you know uh, conditions where they've bought it from fair enough but it's the wrong way I think uh, red wine tasted cool you're going to get more of the fruit flavours coming through and um, I think you'll get a better result uh, from the wine well, that is a Vistamar Brisa Sauvignon Blanc, and it's a very good price at €9.50. Euros 50. And there is a red version now, which is €14, euros, which is the most expensive one that you have on the table here, which still isn't very expensive for a red wine. Um, again, um, we have three ranges here from Vistamar. Um, we have the Brisa range, which we're just after tasting there, the Sauvignon Blanc. We have another uh, range in between uh, called the Sepia range, and then they have the Grand Reserva range, okay? And the Grand Reserva is actually a blend. It's 60% Cabernet and 40% Syrah. And it's the 2010 vintage. Now, that might change next year. It might be 70% Cabernet, 30% Syrah. That depends on the winemaker. Uh, depends on which fruit has produced, uh, which, sorry, vines have produced the best fruit. And uh, they've come up with a very, very good blend here. And at 14 euros, it's, it's very, very good value. It's a uh, wine that needs to be opened in advance. And often people say, how, how often, you know, or how, how long before. Um, I would think that you could open this wine three to four hours. And if you haven't got that time, what you can do is decant it. And by decanting your wine, you're aerating, you're getting, you know, you're, getting, you're going to get more expression from the fruit. And if you haven't got a decanter, get the jug out of the kitchen, pour it into the jug, and then if the people are coming around, your visitors, put it back in the bottle again. But you'll have aerated the wine and you'll end up with a far better result. And it makes all the difference. Oh, absolutely. On a red wine like this, um, you know, this has been bottled for, you know, uh, three years at this stage. And I think it needs time to open up. And you will definitely, I think the best thing to do is, uh, if you're having a, a, you know, a meal with, with friends some evening, is open one bottle and leave it as it is and decant the same bottle and then taste the two of them and you will see a huge difference between the two. And speaking of bottles, this bottle shape is a bit different to the the other red wine bottles. Well, that's really a marketing uh, issue, you know, um, the wine uh, okay, there's a punt, there's a deep punt which is the bottom of the bottle that you tend to get good quality wines will have a deep punt and um, you know, it's a old Bordeaux style shape and um, it, it leads to better preservation of the wine, there's no doubt about it. Um, but it's not the be-all and end-all. But, you know, it is well-designed, the label is well-designed to catch the eye. And um, the wine is good. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's have a try. Okay. I'll give it a swirl here. It's a lovely deep red colour. Mm-hmm. OK, and on the nose, we, we're getting some cherries and some plum fruit coming through. And then on the palate is a nice burst of red cherry fruit and uh, a a nice mouthfeel. And again, what you judge a wine, there's great length in this. You know, if you didn't taste another wine for another minute or two, you'll still feel little parts of that coming through. That's what I mean by good length. 
Yeah, it's very nice. Lovely. Yeah, lovely. Probably uh, better uh, consumed with food. Okay. Um, Okay. Okay. What about uh, something like the turkey? Would that go well with Christmas dinner? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, turkey is dry. um, And this is, you know, as I said, the cherry and plum fruit so you know there's um there's a nice roundness to the wine and i think a good offset against uh, against dry turkey again it depends on what sauce you have with the turkey as well but that would be an ideal an ideal christmas day wine yeah now there's one other wine that i want to ask you about and it has irish connections which one is that uh, this is the it's a range called river retreat and it's made by trentham estate and the trentham estate is run by two brothers and they are murphy brothers uh, Anthony and Paul Murphy uh, they're in Murray Darling region uh, in New South Wales and um, I, as far as I know they're about second or third generation Irish but um, they have the Irish connection and certainly at wine, at wine fairs around the world they, um, they're not afraid to say that and this is Shiraz. What other varieties do they have? Um, well, they're primarily big, big red wine producers from that region. Um, they would have Shiraz, they've Cabernet, they've Merlot, they've a small amount of Pinot Noir, and then they blend. They will blend the Cabernet and the Shiraz, and then sometimes they blend a Shiraz and a Cabernet. It depends on on what the winemaker feels is the best result. They have a Sauvignon Blanc, and they have Chardonnay, and unusually they have a Pinot Grigio which is typical Italian, but they're getting good results from their Pinot Grigio and they have a wine called, uh, grape called Moscato, which is more a sweet wine, but again, in limited supply. Now, you have a number of reds and whites here on the table. What's your favourite white here and your favourite red? <laughs> um, well... <laughs> Very hard to choose, is it? It is, really, because I, I think... Um, uh, it, it's, it's nice to diversify um, there's a Riesling there from Chile which is most unusual uh, a Riesling on a nice a warm sunny day can be can be very refreshing you know Sauvignon Blancs are quite refreshing the Chardonnays are a bit more rounded and offer a bit more body and um, it's hard to call a favourite but um, even though I'm selling a lot of New World wines, uh, I tend to drift back to European wines, especially Italian wines. Um, uh, you know, but that's a personal kind of uh, personal choice. Yeah. You have a Pinot Grigio there, don't you? Yes, we have a Pinot Grigio um, uh, from Veneto uh, called Il Caggio, and it's again it's a family winery. Um, the um, it's a family winery. Um, they're fairly big, but they have a very. This is a very good quality Pinot Grigio, and Pinot Grigio is is quite popular with all the uh, all the punters now at the moment. There's lots of Pinot Grigio out there, and some of it is not great and can be a bit cheap, but this is nice and rounded and uh, very refreshing. Okay. Well, all of these wines are available in County Limerick from Forestal Wine Merchants, and then in other parts of the country, if people want to find out where to get them, do you have a web web address? Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, the vineyard.ie. Yeah. Fantastic. Listen, lovely to talk to you. Thank you, Sharon. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Great to meet Frank at the Forestal Wine Merchants Annual Wine Tasting, which raised lots of money for Friends of St. Ida's in Newcastle West, County Limerick. And uh, hopefully that interview will have provided you with lots of inspiration for your wine shopping this Christmas. Still to come tonight, Keith Mahan from the Taste.ie, Ireland's online food and drink magazine, will be on the phone. And Michelin star chef JP McMahon will be appealing for your support for his Kickstarter project, Farmer, which is a fast food restaurant with a difference. Next, though, I'm delighted to head over to the phone and put a call into a friend in Belfast. Joris Min is a well-known PR expert and he also writes the restaurant reviews for the Belfast Telegraph. His Twitter feed was all alight there a few weeks ago when he was on a trip to France. But it wasn't any old trip. In fact, it sounds like it was a bit of a trip of a lifetime. And sure, isn't Joris the best person to tell us all about it? But he is a busy guy and I believe he's on the line now en route to a function in Belfast city centre. So hopefully the line quality will be OK. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Joris, you're on a big rush now. You're on your way to a lovely restaurant in Belfast, but... As you're en route, I want to ask you about this great trip you were on recently to France. Tell us about it. Sharon, I, I'm not sure if it actually was for real or if it actually happened. Did I dream it? I'm not sure. Uh, it was just so 
unreal and I, it was very unexpected. What happened was that I, I sat as a judge in a cocktail making competition a couple of months back for Hennessy Cognac and Hennessy are celebrating their 250th anniversary this year and so they embarked on a series of you know events and things to do to to help mark the, their birthday and I suppose by way of thanking me for my, my efforts drinking 22 cocktails and remaining standing and and unfair as well and keeping a good palate throughout throughout the whole night um, they invited me over along with a couple of other people including the, the winners of the cocktail competition um, to spend two or three days with them in cognac and discovering how the whole things made and the secrets of it all it was just uh, a, a, just a revelation I had no idea as, as to how uh, how deep in history they were and how much uh, a part of the landscape they are it's, uh, um, sorry you got to stay in a fabulous chateau I believe yeah the, the, the Hennessy family bought uh, Chateau de Bagnolet it's called and it's literally about a kilometre outside of Cognac town, um, a kilometre from the middle of the town, which is actually where the distillery is. Um, and the Chateau de Bagnolet is is not technically a chateau that you can imagine that you would see in the Loire, you know, with turrets and, you know, romantic um, balconies and so on. It's, it's a completely different kind of chateau. Chateau de Bagnolet is a Louisiana-style grand old house of the southern states. It's white. It sits on top of a hill. It's two stories. It has large shutters. It's very grand. It's very big, but it's very um, the la belle la, la, le, le beau sud, if you understand me. That Louisiana style of architecture, and apparently that's why Hennessy loved it so much. There must have been a link between Hennessy, as of course there is with Ireland, um, but also with Louisiana, uh, which is equally famous for its uh, distillation um, sector. And it's, look, I, they. They, they handed us the keys of, of this place, would you believe, with the staff, and we were able to spend uh, a night in it. We had dinner in it. Um, people served us drinks with cotton gloves on. They changed the color of the gloves when they changed the, uh, the, the drinks that they were serving us. I mean, it was just a, a completely different world. For me, though, Sharon, what was particularly uh, moving was the fact that my mother is from Cognac, her, her maiden name was Heron, and the Herons left Ireland more or less at the same time as the Hennessys and a, and a number of other Irish distillers um, from down in the southwest, not far from uh, where, where you are now in West Limerick. And they went to Cognac and set up various brandy distilleries. And the Heron distillery kept going right up until the 50s. Uh, it didn't have the same success, sadly, that uh, Hennessy had and was eventually bought up by somebody. But the last heron in our family was my uncle Gaston, Gaston Héron. And he, he died there about 10 years ago at the age of 95. Um, and so for me to go back there to the old country, as it were, um, I'm still a French passport holder. You probably wouldn't tell that I was French from my accent, but I am. Um, and going back to Cognac was, was, you know, it was a very moving uh, moment. What was lovely about the grandeur of all this was that it was also very intimate. There, there's still that element in France that you get, which is very democratic. And we have to remember, you know, what they did with their royal family. You know, it's a republic. So anybody who uh, starts getting ideas about themselves or feeling aristocratic, they're not going to last too long. So even somebody as noble as you were, as, as it were, as the, the Hennessy family, know their place and know not to get too hoity-toity. Um, the fact, the fact shown by the, you know, the trust that they had in us in having us over the case of their, their 250-acre estate. Was this, um, was this the first time that you'd been, been there? Have you visited there a few times, as in you visited Cognac a few times? I had visited Cognac as a young child, um, and that was nearly 50 years ago. And I remember my uncle Gaston very well, and also my granda, um, my granda Gabriel Heron, and they introduced me to drink, and um, they taught me how to how to appreciate it rather than drink it by volume. And um, I, I suppose that's where I, I, I developed a love for it. Although I have to say, I, I'm the disgrace of my family because I drink beer 
and I, I do like beer. Um, I, I have no knowledge of wine. I'm not a I'm not very good on any wines other than around the Loire and maybe a, maybe a little bit down to Bordeaux. Um, so, you know, it's a revelation. I, I can now talk quite knowledgeably as to how you make uh, cognac, how you make good cognac. And uh, I can tell you anything you want to know about Hennessy as well. It sounds like a fabulous trip. <laughs> Honestly, Sharon, I, the, the, the amazing thing about it is that you can't buy this. You can't book it. You can't go to a wedding and it's, it's, it's purely down to the Hennessy family, you know, whether they want to entertain you or not or whether they want to invite you. So, obviously, the Hennessy label, you know, which is part of a huge group now. I mean, it's part of the what's called the LVMH group, which stands for Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy. Um, is It's a very large corporate affair. They sell, you know, something like 70 million bottles of cognac every year, which is about 20 million more than they do um, what the Chandon Champagne, which gives you an idea of just the volumes that we're talking about. And for all the intimacy and the, the sheer artisanship that goes into the the making of uh, of their drink, it, it is a, a very slick machine. Um, and, and it's something that, funny enough, is, is, uh, is very well hidden. Um, what's more interesting, Sharon, is the way they've managed to reposition brandy. You know, cognac, used to be a drink that you would have had after your dinner and usually it was drunk by damp old men. Now it's uh, it's a cocktail base, you know, for cool young dudes and and that's where they want to try and position it. So it's um, it's interesting, you know, how these brands change themselves. Did they have Hennessy wine there as well? Did I see a photograph of Hennessy wine? It's a good question. What they have is a thing called vin. It is the word for wine but it's not wine as you and I know it. It is a kind of wine that they make especially for distillation. So all the vineyards that you will see surrounding Cognac um, and the the distilleries in Cognac, all of those um, are either privately owned or owned by the Cognac distillers themselves. But the wine that they make is not a drinkable wine. It's not something that you could sit down and drink at the table because it's purely designed for um, distillation. And so the winemakers or the, the cognac distillers know what they're looking for. Um, so we tasted this wine. And, you know, I mean, to me, it, it, it tasted like incredibly acidic uh, apple juice. Um, but to the, to the expert, uh, to the expert distiller, a taster, uh, they, can, they can determine, you know, if it's a good, uh, good wine for distillation, if it's going to make a good eau de vie or not. And, and eau de vie is the whole point of this. Eau de vie is the French for um, water of life, it's the same as the Irish, Ishkavaha. And it's, um, it's down to the, the expertise of those people who can blend um, the eau de vie to make the brandy, to make the cognac. And they can use maybe up to 40 um, eau de vie uh, to make a good brandy. Well, listen, you're so lucky to have had such an exclusive and exciting trip. And thanks so much for telling us about it this evening. When I saw the pictures and the comments on Twitter, I just knew I had to make a call to you to find out more because I'm nosy like that. I I am so glad you asked me about it because I've been busting to tell somebody about it (laughs) because uh, my wife and family didn't want to listen. (laughs) Oh, the jealousy is a terrible thing. That's it. Green envy. Yoris, thanks so much for your time this evening and enjoy your meal in. In Love Fish. Happy Christmas to everybody in West Limerick. <laughs> thanks, Yoris. I will see you back north soon, I hope, Sharon. You will indeed. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to tonight's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and if you've just joined us on the show tonight, before the break I was talking to Joris Min in Belfast about a recent and very exciting trip to France. It sure wasn't the, the passion clearly evident in his voice. And before Joris you heard me tasting wine at the Forestal Wine Merchants Annual Wine Fair. If you've just tuned in and you've missed some of the show, it will be up on the Best Possible Taste podcast later in the week, along with all the previous shows. And you'll find the podcast on soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show. Or you can also subscribe to it and download it free of charge through iTunes and listen to it through the podcast app on your iPhone or iPad. 
And still to come tonight, Michelin star chef JP McMahon will be appealing for your support for his Kickstarter project, Farmer, which is a fast food restaurant with a difference. Next, though, it's time to head back to the phone to talk to Keith Mahan from thetaste.ie, which is Ireland's online food and drink magazine. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. You're very welcome to the programme this evening, Keith. Thanks for having me on. And I'm going to start by asking you about a piece of news that I saw on the TS.ie very recently there, and it's an album by the Michelin star chef, Kevin Thornton. Kevin is celebrating his restaurant uh, being in business for so long now, and he decided to put together an album. Um, and to be honest, anybody who knows Kevin, he's so creative. Um, you know, <laughs> he never does anything just very, very simply whether it's cooking out in the snow or whether it's going foraging or or whatever. He's he's actually, if he wasn't a chef, he would have been an artist. I, I have to say this. The last time I ate there, he brought out a tiny little piece of food on, on, a, on a, a piece of bog, and it was amazing. It looked incredible, you know, so I'm not surprised that he's doing that, you know. One of the aspects that is really fantastic about the TS.ie is the news. It's very up-to-date current news that you have on the website. And there's lots of other information there, competitions, reviews, offers. How do you go about sourcing the news and the competitions? Well, I suppose um, the taste was set up as a, to work as a traditional magazine. So... There's 12 people working for The Taste, and, and myself and Jules, uh, my wife, run The Taste, and the rest are all writers. So we're very, very passionate about the credibility of the site. Um, we, we don't really have any salespeople whatsoever. Uh, we sort of feel that if the site and the, and the news and the articles are credible, well, then people will want to work with us. Um, so we work very hard uh, all throughout the month researching what's going on and what what restaurants are popping up and you know what events are happening and so forth and we try if anyone keeps up to date with us on twitter you'll probably notice that we're we're probably out every single night of the week uh, so when we actually do get a chance to stay in and have a cup of tea it's a it's a welcome break uh, but the last year has been a roller coaster and and you know thankfully it's been worth it we have um over 1.7 million readers in the last year. I thought, uh, along with Jules, I, we thought that we were building a, a magazine that was niche. It was a luxury magazine, um, and that maybe 100,000 people in a year might be interested in the luxury magazine, but it's not niche, you know. People are, there's a little bit more money in the economy, and people want their treats, and if they are going to go to an event, they want to go to a culinary event, and you know, you can see that the years of, of of Irish people just constantly going to the pubs and and so forth are now changing, and it's people who really want the culinary experience and go out to restaurants and you know festivals and so forth. You celebrated one year recently, mm. didn't you? Yeah, yeah, it was great. Uh, we had our birthday party in house on Leeson Street. And it was a Monday and we said, oh, God, maybe nobody will turn up. But we got 150 people uh, from the leading faces from the restaurant industry and and hotel industry. And we celebrated and and we were very guarded about our figures right up until that night. Because, you know, as a startup, you enjoy a certain amount of support from from people. and, And generally, Irish people are great. They want startups to succeed. But when you turn around and say that you've achieved something, sometimes people, you know, may not be that supportive. So we were very guarded with our stats and we released that we had made a difference. We had turned over one million euro for restaurants and hotels, which was a a huge milestone for us. Um, And it shows that people really trust the site and and want to to spend money on the site. And and we had achieved over 1.7 million readers, which... Is amazing for for something that was started up by two people and now it's now it's twelve. It's great. It sounds like it surpassed all your expectations. It has, you know, like in a previous life, I would have been a managing director of Digital Warps, which was the Irish Times Digital Investment. So I had sites like you know myhomebuildingirm.com, Irish Racing, IrishTimes.com, and so forth. All amazing sites and. You know, you could see the traffic was incredible on them. 
but you you never think you're going to have anything like that when you set it up yourself because obviously you know it was completely self-funded we didn't get any grants or anything like that so you know, we were amazed that, you know, people really bought into the site and, and thought it was very credible. As an entrepreneur, if there's people listening that are thinking about starting up a business of some description, what advice would you give to them? Um, I think the best piece of advice, if you're not willing you know, to spend the whole day, every day on your business, then you're not going to make it a success. Now, we've got three kids. Uh, and it is very challenging and every now and again Jules will say to me but you know we're missing out on this and that and I would say to her it's one year or maybe even two years to get this business going and then our family will be very very secure hopefully if we do a good job and you know my advice to any entrepreneur out there is you need to throw yourself into this because for so many years I thought to myself you know I can do this and I constantly put it off because as a man, you have to earn the bread and butter and make sure that you have money for the mortgage and so forth and all that. So it is hard to take a risk. But the moment you take that risk and you wake up the next morning, your mind is extremely sharp because there is no safety net. There's no one else going to pay the bills unless you actually get up and go for it. As you said there at the start, you're out most nights of the week. Now, I don't think people will have much sympathy for you whenever you're out <laughs> whining and dining and, and at different events. And you're saying there about the work-life balance comes yeah. very much into question. It does. It's very hard. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm sure people would, you know, look on Twitter and, and say, oh, my God, they're at this event and that event and so forth. And, like... Some of them are amazing and and the food generally is amazing and so forth. But there is that balance of, you know, we do have three kids. There's various different events. There's football matches. There's, you know, GAA matches. You know, there's their concerts in school and so forth. And, we, you know, it is very difficult because, you know, we are committed to making the taste a success, but not at the detriment of our own family. So getting that balance right is, is hard. Well, let's turn to the content on the website for a minute. I mentioned the competitions. You've talked about reviews there. You also mm-hmm. you also would have special offers regularly. Just give us a few examples of those. Yeah, the offers go down on real treat now, I have to say. Uh, what we do is we try and get, you know, some really, really, uh, you know, amazing offers from high-end brands. So to give me an example, we had a nine-course tasting menu with a glass of champagne, from Lac Ravan, which is a Michelin star restaurant. And that would normally cost about 250 euro, and we had it for 99 euro. So if you want to try a Michelin experience, well, that was an unbelievable offer that we have. But like on the site at the moment, we have like with Marco Pierre White, um, uh, which is a four course with a bottle of wine, 79 euro. We've got luxury breaks to the G Hotel, the Maryborough Hotel, the Ice House. Um, we have Bang Restaurant in Dublin and Fade Street Social. So all the big names are there. And I suppose what we try to do is try, especially at this time of year, Christmas, we try to make sure that we have something at every price point. Okay. So if I was buying a present for my brother, probably the most I'd pay is 25 or 50 euro, depending on how nice he was to me this year. Of course. And yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we try and have something at that price point, you know, if someone's just going out for drinks and a couple of nibbles, maybe 25 euro price point, or somebody really wants to treat themselves, then we would have an 80 euro or 90 euro price point. So we try and make sure that there's something there for everybody. And those offers are for all over the country. It's not just Dublin. Yeah, yeah. we have at the moment uh, right now, we've got Galway, we've got Mayo, we've got Cork, um, we have Mead, uh, we've Dublin. And uh, tomorrow we're going to have something in Belfast and then the next day we're going to have something down in Wexford. So we try and get the balance. It's not always possible. The Dublin market is very active. So you do tend to have a few more offers in Dublin than anywhere else. But we try to, it's a a national magazine and you can tell from even the content every month when we launch a new version of the online magazine, we try and make sure that we've, we've reached as many counties as possible. The other part of the website that's very interesting and very good is the foodie TV section. Mm, yeah, 
it's really catching on, you know. I think, you know, we do have a recipe section and, and the recipes from really, really high-end chefs, you know. But we decided to, to plug into the whole sort of YouTube market uh, with Foodie TV and... Uh, we just did a partnership with a really, really cool food stylist called Jeff Birdie, and we started to create our own videos, um, and they're absolutely amazing now. I'm blown away with the, the quality of the result that Jeff put together. And she has a fabulous recipe there that I must flag up to the listeners for. I think, is it a Prosecco jelly? Yeah, it's, it's like, you know what, after seeing that, I don't think anybody should be afraid of trying stuff out at home. You know, if you've seen the recipe, it's pretty simple to put together. Uh, But I have to say, if you served it in your house at Christmas, people will be surprised and and will probably think that your culinary talents are higher than they actually are. Very easy to follow, very short as well, so you don't have to invest a lot of time in actually watching it. Yeah, that's what we sort of said. Look, you know, people have an attention span of about two minutes online, um, certainly for one piece of content. So we're trying to come in underneath that, you know, but not sacrifice the video. Like, as you can tell, you can still make that recipe, even though we've, we've kept it very, very short. Absolutely. Well, it is a fabulous online food and drink magazine. It's at thetaste.ie. It is free of charge. There's no subscription fees involved in it. That's right, yeah. And the listeners could do worse than to be logging on there this evening to have a look at it. Keith, thanks so much for your time this evening. Congratulations on your first year. We look forward to catching up with you in 2016. That's brilliant. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break I was talking to Keith Mahan from thetaste.ie, Ireland's online food and drink magazine and earlier in the show PR guru and restaurant reviewer for the Belfast Telegraph Joris Min was on the phone enthusing about his fantastic trip to a chateau in France that belongs to the Hennessy Cognac family. You can listen to those interviews again when tonight's show goes up on the Best Possible Taste podcast, which is on soundcloud.com and the show will be posted there later in the week. Or alternatively, subscribe to the show free of charge and download it at no cost on iTunes or through the podcast app on your iPhone or iPad. So my final guest on the programme this evening is no stranger to the best possible taste. JP McMahon has appeared a few times this year talking about the Galway Food Festival and the Food on the Edge Symposium, which was held in Galway in October. This man cannot sit still and he has another very exciting project on the go. It's simply called Farmer. It's a fast food restaurant group with a focus on provenance, ethics, sustainability and animal welfare. JP joins us on the phone now to explain it in more detail. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. JP, you're on a mission again. Oh, another one, another little project to keep me going. I think you must have ants in your pants. You just cannot sit still. But it's always, uh, it's always an incredible project that you're involved in. And this time it's called Farmer. Just tell us what exactly it is. I suppose I think uh, fast food needs a bit of a shake-up in Ireland and I, uh, I've been thinking about it for a while and I think that it, uh, the model could lend itself to a lot better, more wholesome food and I think that uh, I'd like to see, I suppose I'd like to try and see if that's, if that's a viable option. So you basically want to open a fast food outlet, expand it throughout Ireland, but it's a fast food outlet with a difference in terms of where the food is sourced and how it's cooked, I would imagine. Oh, absolutely. So the, one of the primary missions would be to source direct from small farmers, and that would be, be a very radical uh, thing to do because that doesn't happen in the in the industry. And also to to, to really, I suppose, put uh, animal providence and uh, ideas of organic and free range, all of that at the fore, and to try and show people that it was more wholesome food can be cooked in a way that people are used to seeing in a very, very processed food. Does that mean that in Galway you're sourcing from Galway suppliers and Belfast you're sourcing from Belfast suppliers? That would be the idea if we expand and if we look to Dublin. It would be nice to have a, um, a, a, 
Co-op. This is the idea that if we had an outlet in Dublin, then we would be drawing on the small farmers that surround Dublin, like artisan, organic um, produce, and if it was in Belfast, the same. So it would be, it would be something that would be very, I suppose, contingent on its uh, on its own environment, and that's something that we do a lot in Anir. And, and I suppose it's kind of like applying the principles of Anir to uh, to the fast food industry. And whenever it comes to costs, then when somebody goes in for their their burger and chips, say the price of that compared to a standard fast food outlet do you want it to be more expensive are they going to pay a premium for it or are you going to try and keep it on a par I'd, I'd like to keep it on a par as much as possible and there might be a little premium on the stuff like uh, whether it's free range or organic uh, meat or that but I mean I've looked at prices um, at individual in, independent uh, fast food restaurants and I mean there's a I suppose the misconception in the fast food industry is that the food is cheap and if you go into any fast food restaurant I mean the food isn't necessarily cheap I mean on the owner side the GP is very very um, high so there's, there's a lot of profit to be made on fast food and the wage cost is very very low and I think that can be exploited I think that you can put in a lot uh, better food and possibly take a hit on the profit margin. But I think that you can come in possibly 50 cents or a euro more expensive. But I think in terms of, I mean, if you're talking about paying 250 for a burger and the burger is going to be 350, I think it's going to be within uh, a lot of people's reach. And I think the, the main thing is to try and reach as many people as possible. This is fairly unique. Nobody has ever done this before in Europe. No, no, no. I mean, one fast food restaurant in in, in America now has um, is, is completely organic. But again, the the, the idea of working directly with farmers, um, so they will benefit, not that a middle person will benefit, because usually the farmer sells on to a middle person, and then you buy from them some some large kind of food company. The idea is to work with uh, small independent farmers, so that you pick your potato farmer, you pick your vegetable farmer, you pick your beef farmer, and they're the ones that take pride then in the product. So rather Rather than just serving a beef burger, it's a beef burger from X or it's a pork burger from Y. And everything becomes very, very contingent on the kind of story and the people that surround it. In terms of setup costs, then, I would imagine that they're significant. I'm hoping we'll, we'll be able to do it for approximately about 100,000 100, euro. Um, I mean, we need a little small development kitchen or a little kitchen where we can produce the food and then another little venue where we can where we where we can sell it. And that would be to start off, and hopefully, then we'll be able to um, uh, bring more farmers on board and get more capital. Uh, and, ho- and there's an idea as well, uh, kind of floating around, that we'll be able to possibly offer farmers shares if we if say they we we agree they agree to suppliers for three years and they'll get a stake. So there's a lot of things that we can that we can do to try and I mean the the, the main aim is to try and to, there's two main aims one is to try and make really really good wholesome fast food and the other is to try and get um, most of the money the, the, the main money that you make back into the farms so then they can uh, produce better food because there's no point if the farmer's getting nothing like some of the milk farmers or some of the beef farmers in the country at the moment there's no point in them getting nothing and then the supermarkets or the middlemen getting everything and that's, that's, a, that's a kind of model that, that's all over the world at the moment where supermarkets are making more and more and more profit from farmers who are making less and less, less money. Your route to funding it to get in the 100,000 euros, you're, you're not going the traditional route. No, we, we, we thought about crowdfunding and I suppose I picked Kickstarter. The disadvantage is that you've only 60 days to raise your target income and it's all or nothing. Um, if you don't get all, you lose everything as well. So, I mean, the difficulty there is, is, is that your funding might be secured, but it's nice to put the idea out there. It creates a nice kind of communal feeling where people can um, invest 5, 10, 20 euro for, 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 different, uh, for different prizes. But it is something I think that's, that, that, that's quite interesting in terms of uh, opening a restaurant. What has the response been to it? The response has been very positive. I mean, up to date, we've raised nearly just under 10,000 euro. We're a long way off our 100. Um, and the, I mean, we have approximately about 35, 40 days um, left. It, it is going to be tough, but I mean, no more than talking to yourself. It's about continually just trying to get the word out there and just to convince people that it's possible. I mean, most people are are, uh, are under the impression that it's not possible to produce really good food um, for um, at a lower cost price. But the misconception there is that um, 
is that often places that run um, at a very, very low cost make actually make the most money. And fast food, the fast food industry, whether it's a chip shop or it's a pizzeria, I mean, usually they're the ones that make the most money in the industry. And it's not the fine dining or the, or the Michelin star restaurants. It's it's uh, it's the other one, the other way around. You have a team of experts that are collaborating with you, people that know the the food industry. How much input have they had into the the concept? Oh no! I mean, between myself, and my wife, and uh, Brendan Allen from Castlemine Farm, Ronan, the friendly uh, friendly farmer from Athen Rye. I mean, we've all thought about this long and hard. And from their point of view, they're farmers. They want to try and reach more people, but they feel that selling to restaurants, uh, selling a premium product to kind of high end restaurants, it can only go so far. And they really need to break into um, a bigger market. And I think the only way to do that is to is to go direct themselves. And and it was kind of chat between between us that, that, that this kind of concept evolved. It is a fantastic idea. I really commend you on it, JP. If people want to go on and and support you a five euros, five hundred euros, however much, how do they how do they do that? If they log on to Kickstarter.com and just type in the words farmer, then our project our project will come up. And you can pledge between five and I think in a thousand euro and there's various um, prizes uh, associated between five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five, a hundred, all the way up. Um, and like again, someone someone gave a thousand euro two days ago. I mean, I don't know them. I mean, I think it's a nice kind of philanthropic way to do things as well. I mean, I, I know about it because I've donated Kickstarter programs before. Things that you'd like to see succeed and you might give them 20 euro, 25 euro. It's, if, if a lot of people put in uh, 20 euro, it can be done. And it's not, it's not about asking people for a lot of money. It's actually it's asking a lot of people for a, for a little money. It's literally putting your money where your mouth is. I think so. And I think we, in Ireland, we have such a, a pride of product in terms of what we produce in the country and we really need to see it uh, going into the best avenues and I mean we really let ourselves down when it comes to the fast food industry it's it's the lowest cost chicken it's the lowest cost beef it's the the, the worst potatoes and I think there's no reason why we can't be using the best of stuff like we do like when, like what we do in, a, in an ear whether organic farmers or whatever they are there's no reason why we can't work with them and, and get them a better livelihood so then the whole thing will just increase we'll have more better more small farmers getting better and better and better and, and hopefully we'll be able to other people will follow I mean, if, if, if people copy the idea I'd be delighted I think we need more and more places serving better and better food Absolutely Now before you go I must ask ask you about food in the age 2016 oh yeah sure we, we started already and uh, I'm sure I, I don't know if you've seen some of that we're releasing a speaker a week at the moment so we've we've released five speakers at the moment we have some 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 uh, those heavy hitters we have Massimo Bittura coming uh, next year and we have um, Virgil Martinez for, who's probably one of Peru's top chefs um, Tim Hollingsworth from LA so I mean the, the, we're going to keep the team as the future of food we're going to invite back five of the speakers from last year. I mean, it was a great success, and I'd like to develop the, that idea and to keep it as a kind of small family of not only chefs, but also the people that come. So we're going to keep it in around the same size, about 300, 400 people and, um, in Galway, and it's, it's, uh, we're selling the tickets already. So hopefully it'll be just as much success as it was this year. I've no doubt it will be, JP. Fair play to you all and all your, your team, your family, your wife. Absolutely, and my sister as well, Jane. and yeah. God, uh, uh, all of them are, are all our managers and all our chefs. But I mean, it's I suppose it's about having I suppose a, a little vision and uh, and and I suppose uh, coming together to to make that possible. Will you get a bit of a break at Christmas? I'll I try. You know, I'm not very good at slowing down, so sure, I might as well keep going now till uh, till I have to slow down. You know. <laughs> well, whatever you get up to, enjoy it, and um, best of luck now with the Kickstarter project. Thank you very much. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Great to talk to JP. And like I must say, he really is an inspiration to so many in the culinary world. So fair play to him for his vision and determination. And that sadly brings us to the end of tonight's show. Thanks for joining me. And thanks to all of tonight's guests, Frank Canine, Joris Min, Keith Mahan and JP McMahon. A final reminder that the best possible taste podcast is online at soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show and can also be subscribed to and downloaded free of charge on your iPad and uh, iPhone through iTunes. 
I'll be back at the same time next week and I'll have an exclusive interview with my most famous guest to date. Yep, Santa Claus. He'll be showing me the inside of his refrigerator. I cannot wait for that. So until then, bon appétit and enjoy this little bit of music from the Belfast Chime and Handbell Choir from when they played in Desmond Banqueting Hall and Castle in Newcastle, West County Limerick in 2013. get in touch with the best possible taste do you want to come on share a recipe review a cookery book or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink all you have to do is get in touch with me Sharon Noonan by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org Bon Appetit